Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. This episode is a repost of Against Everyone with Connor Beebe 3, which is now over two years old. I can't believe it. You can tell the sound quality uh, isn't as good. Um, <laughs> and I've tried to remaster it a little bit. Um, back from when people did not really listen to the show as much <laughs> as they listen to it now. Um, and nevertheless, I knew back then that one of the big aims of the show was to get people to rethink the concept of work. So this episode was originally entitled Work and Die. Now I'm just retitling it Abolish Work because that's really what I want to help people be aimed towards when they listen to this episode, which is what does a world without work look like? It's something that came up very recently on Against Everyone with Connor Beeb 83 with uh, the theorist and writer Franco. Bifa Berardi, where at the end of that episode, I make a comment that nobody should be paid for their labor, and he heartily agrees, um, which might sound a little counterintuitive coming from a socialist uh, Marxist thinker for people that uh, aren't super uh, involved in post-work ideas. But um, basically, we're pointing to the fact that the wage-labor relationship destroys our lives, sometimes literally uh, kills us, um, but if not, can destroy our souls. Um, So on this episode, I talk about how having a job is deadening and deadly. I talk about why work is uh, basically blackmail from the state and from corporations, Um, how work has fundamentally changed us into computers. That's actually an idea that I took from one of Bifo's books, um, which is The Soul at Work. I can't believe I mentioned uh, him sort of starry-eyed in this episode and, and two years later got to meet with him in Bologna and uh, have him on the show. So um, there's a lot else in this as well. But basically, I hope that you'll listen to this episode and get uh, a sense of a different kind of question, which is not what do I want to do, meaning what kind of job do I want, how do I make a living, but rather what do I want my day to look like? I feel like this is a transformative question and we should all be asking it. And I'm going to keep asking it of you uh, who listen as we go forward and asking it of myself. What do I want my day to look like? Um, I am very fortunate um, to be in the position to say part of my day is making this podcast. It takes a lot of effort and that effort is work because I have to treat this like a job. In other words, it takes up so much time that I need to get paid for it in an economy uh, and a world that demands that uh, if you don't get paid for your labor, you will die um, or starve or you're going to have to find some other kind of uh, way to spend your day that is even worse for you and less connected to your own autonomy and the things that you love. So that's what's at stake for me uh, with the show. <laughs> so whenever you hear me say, please support my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb, I really mean it. That's what's at stake. And I would like to make this kind of life that I'm living, uh, I mean, I'm getting a PhD, I'm uh, doing the podcast, I'm writing, I'm giving talks. I would like to make that kind of life where everybody gets to be their own kind of uh, artist, their own creative person, uh, 
more available and easier for everybody. So that's something that uh, I'm trying to do in my efforts. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb is a great way to sort of web yourself into that kind of economy. Um, and I hope that this show gives something to you. I hope that the efforts uh, that I put into this show bring something to your life of real value, inspire new thoughts, um, inspire conversations. But hey, I mean, if you hate it, you can also support it. Uh, patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. That's my last pitch for it. Uh, here is the newly titled... Uh, and newly posted against everyone, Connor Beeb, uh, 85, Work uh, and Die is now called Abolish Work. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode three of Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I'm Connor Habib, and you probably already knew that. Let me start off by thanking everybody that supports the show on Patreon. If you don't, please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, and you will find there ways to sign up and support the show and also lots of cool stuff you can get an audio download of every show um, an extra episode each month access to the Connor Habib book club and more. Episode three is cheerfully entitled Work and Die. I'm going to be talking about work today and, uh, you know, death. And you might be thinking to yourself, Connor, I am on my way to work. I don't want to be thinking about it or dying there or maybe you're on your way home from work or whatever. But don't worry, I'm going to keep it interesting. It was really important for me to do an episode about work early on in the series because, well, for a lot of reasons. The first one is that it's at the center of so many leftist struggles, um, labor struggles, whether we're talking about the division of labor, the distribution of wealth, if we're talking about the, the pay gap between men and women, if we're talking about the, in the case of my community, sex work is work movement. Labor is the sphere that leftism often takes place in and leftist actions often take place in. Um, I also chose it because it affects everybody. It doesn't really matter if you're a political or an apolitical person, um, if you're into philosophy or spirituality, the politics, philosophy, and spirituality of work affect you. I mean, Let's say you never read the news or whatever. You're still really interested in the power dynamics between you and your boss, what kind of health benefits you get, the taxes that are taken out of your paycheck, um, what the laws are that affect the roads, that uh, affect your commute to work every day. In the first episode of Against Everyone with Connor Beebe, I talked about the, um, the necessity of dreaming bigger, of having bigger ideas and just allowing ourselves to create the world in our imaginations out of a pleasurable, enjoyable uh, gesture, instead of getting hung up on all the obstacles of practicality. And I want to do that in regards to work, because this is something that affects us in our everyday lives. So work is central to us because it is most of our waking time. And all that time we spend at work evinces itself through our everyday lives, even when we're not at work. Um, you see it 
most commonly in the culturally obsessed question of what do you do? You know, when you meet someone, the first thing you ask, I mean, it's like, okay, what's your name? Where are you from? Have you had sex with Connor Abib? And then you say, what do you do? Um, and what are we longing for when we ask that question? Why do we ask it? The other version of that question is, to me, truly grotesque. The other version of that question is, what do you do for a living? Or how do you make a living? So we turn our attentions to how we make a living. I think it's a really bizarre phrase if you think about it. This idea that life can only be constantly created um, or made by generating money for yourself from effort. To me, making a living is offensive because in our culture, it's really a euphemism for work or die. See, in our culture, if we don't work, we don't get food. We don't get money, of course. We don't, in this country, usually get health insurance. Um, we don't get anything, really. In fact, we're just totally bound to work. If we don't work, we'll be killed by the indifference of the state. Um, at the very least, we'll be made homeless. We'll have to completely rearrange our lives and sort of live outside uh, some of the things that we want or expect. Why should this be? Um, that's just the bottom of the sort of the foundation of this question um, of making a living. Think about it. When, when I say working for a living or making a living means work or die, uh, I'm not just saying, okay, well, you go to work, you come home, and that's it. It's awesome. You get to hang out in your hammock and, you know, whatever, have a Slurpee, play with the dog and uh, Xbox or whatever the fuck. Instead, it means work 40 hours a week, work 60 hours a week, work 70 hours a week or die, work 70 hours back and forth from two jobs or watch your children die from starvation or, you know, whatever. You can't take them to the doctor. Also, neglect them the whole time and yourself. So we're not talking about, you know, work and then you can chill. We're talking about an enormous amount of time every week, every day, almost every day. And things are even worse than that because it's more intense than work or die. Work is dangerous and deadly in and of itself. There are 5,000 deaths a year, which means about 14 deaths a day on the job. That's on the job. And there are 3 million injuries, and those are reported or assumed, okay? So 3 million reported or assumed injuries a year. Now, start to add in the rest. <laughs> Workplace illness that leads to death. All right, workplace disfigurement. In other words, it's an injury that happens that may or may not be reported, but it's so bad that it changes the quality of somebody's life, um, the way they go about their day. Injuries that aren't reported because they're undocumented workers or workers who are separated from their families because they're undocumented workers arrested um, by the government. Work that leads to stress that leads to disease. Work stress that leads to suicide or homicide. People that are killed on their way to and from work. So think about that. It's a really huge risk. People are dying on the job, they're dying off the job, and most importantly, they're dying for the job.
It's no wonder that people tie their sense of self-worth so tightly and their identity so tightly to their jobs. Because when someone says, what do you do? It doesn't mean, what's this awesome thing you do with your life? It very often means, um, what are you doing uh, so that you don't die? And what are you doing uh, that may actually eventually kill you every day? Um, the stakes become really high. And of course, many of these jobs that kill or disfigure or injure or steal the life away from people, they actually don't have to be done by people anymore. There's been a dream for a really long time um, of automation, of automating work. Now, I'm going to talk about why that's not in place. I, I'm not some the singularity Jesus is coming to save us robot. I, that's my robot Jesus voice, I guess, kind of dude. But I want to talk about the fact that the technology is actually there to automate a lot of work that we have right now. And so a lot of these jobs that are extremely soul crushing or dangerous or just like, you know, depression and stress creating aren't really necessary anymore. There are at least components of them. Commutes aren't necessary anymore. Automations are possible uh, for many forms of manual labor. 3D printing instead of factories is available. Information access on the internet instead of consulting experts is available to us. So there are a lot of ways in which these dreams of automation, which people have been sort of thinking about for years, even back to when people would be like the house of the future, um, <laughs> this sort of retro future idea, they actually are realizable by technology. But okay, it's obvious that that hasn't happened. And there's a lot of reasons why. And what's happened instead is a bizarre distortion of that dream, of that vision, um, that bigger idea that maybe we could have a lot of our work taking care of us, uh, taking care for us. So, I'm going to talk about what's happening at the workplace um, because so many people spend time there and what does work look like in the absence of this automation, even though we could automate a lot of work. Well, it looks a little bit like this. And if you're not watching, <laughs> if you're listening, I'm just sitting and moving my fingertips. There's a quote from Franco Bifo Berardi, who is an amazing uh revolutionary thinker, and he has a book called The Soul at Work. And his quote is very simple. Today, what does it mean to work? We type. See, work is stationary now. We used to have a field of physical labor. Now, so much of work involves some computer components. So I know there are lots of people out there doing hard manual labor, physical labor, but increasingly, there's at least some computer component, some computer staple of their workplace, even if they're doing physical labor. So if you think about that, what that means is if you look into the work lives of everybody, if you could just sort of put them all in one room and look in from the outside, you would see a bunch of people just stationed with their eyes open, sitting in the same position, and their fingers moving, and maybe their eyes moving back and forth. So um, just this upright seated position, limited movements in the fingers and the eyes. This has had a profound effect on us. It's essentially translated our days into stationary activities. Our bodies are still with our eyes and our hands moving. The rest of the world, the world um, that's sensual, it falls away. I'll, I'll talk more about this probably in other episodes because I think um, 
it's actually changed our conception of time and space in some ways. Uh, and I don't think that that's totally negative. I'm not a Luddite or a singularity dude, but let's leave that aside and just recognize that this is actually a new phenomena. This idea of having someone sit in this weird angle and, um, make these small movements while having all this sort of internal stuff going on, that's happening on a mass scale across the planet. That is new. Instead of a field of physical labor, it's this invisible landscape that we're driven into while our bodies are making minor movements. We might be considering things inwardly while using the small movements to create products or events that have a tremendous effect on the world outwardly or externally. So see, there was a time when we dreamed of machines replacing people so that we didn't have to work. And now we are the machines in essence. We're linked up to these boxes somewhat permanently, it seems. Our fingers are like cogs. Our heads are extensions of these boxes. In fact, one of my favorite philosophers, Michel Serre, he says that the laptop is like a second head, or you could think of it as your extra chakra or whatever, in addition to your phone. Maybe you have two extra chakras. The reason why this tech is not the great news that it could be is that we're still embedded in a certain culture of work, a certain mindset of work. Not to mention, of course, the economic system that we're in. You might wonder why I'm not mentioning capitalism. It's not always my preferred lens for things, but don't worry, I'll get to that in a little bit. What I want to do right now is sort of leave that aside for a little bit and just talk about this mindset of work. Because people feel they must work. So instead of turning our workplace or our world into a place where work is automated and we're automating work, because we're so bound to work, we instead turn ourselves into working automatons. We tie our sense of self to what we do so deeply, and so only a totally narrow answer is available when someone asks, what do you do? Well, here's my job. Because we're commanded not just by the economic system, but by a culture that makes work noble, a culture that celebrates good work ethic, uh, that celebrates you being a workaholic. You've probably seen these ads. There's been a lot springing up lately of millennial type people on billboards that are like, sure, I uh, work 20 hours a day and I didn't get to see my kids, but sometimes you got to take that risk, yo. <laughs> uh, and it's always, they're always working on stupid bullshit apps that are like make buying furniture easier for rich people or something. And of course, many people don't have jobs. Um, and those people are still locked into the effort of seeking a job because everything in our cultural apparatus supports that and denies escape from it. And really significantly, so many people are unemployed in this moment right now. 200 million people are unemployed. That's from the International Labor Organization, that figure. So that's probably actually a conservative figure, 200 million people unemployed. That's not counting people who are in tent jobs. So there are plenty of people that you know aren't accounted for that should be, or people who are never counted at all because they're homeless and just not included in uh, statistics like this. Let's tally up the score here. <laughs> Work or you'll die. Work and you'll die. Work and turn yourself into a computer. <laughs> uh, work at the expense of everything else. And if you're not working, you should seek a job. 
Uh, you should desperately seek work because otherwise you don't really have an identity and we won't even, we may not even count you. Um, so you start to get this pretty dystopic idea of work as a sphere for revolutions and politics to happen in. I don't object to labor struggle. It's been a huge part of my life and my activism, particularly in securing better working conditions for adult performers. Um, but we can't let the vision of better workplaces, um, of better jobs, more of job availability, all that kind of stuff, or even things like um, uh, universal basic or minimum income uh, to cloud our imaginations when we want to imagine a world where we don't have to work at all. Um, because all these labor struggles do end up uh, privileging the existence of work in the first place. This was really brought home to me um, by actually this book, which is, if you can see it, Marxism and the Native Americans, um, edited by Ward Churchill. Um, I know some people have trouble with Ward Churchill. I'm not going to go into that because it's a lot of different contributors. I had just graduated from college and I was my head was full of critical theory a lot of it uh, very Marxist so in Russell Means's essay uh, which is called the same old song it's a great essay I think actually he just spoke it and someone wrote it down um, he makes this statement in critiquing Marxism where he says we need to watch out about wanting to be over needing to gain right we need to make sure we want to be being is a spiritual proposition, he says. Gaining is a material act. Um, work, whether it's in a capitalist or a Marxist model, has blended the two in this unfortunate way that uh, we're really just needing to gain, but we think we're wanting to be. So that critique ultimately led me to a question. Why do people need to gain? Why do we need a job at all? Why have we set up a culture that demands work. Let's take money out of the equation for a second. Don't worry, I'll give you back all your conceptual money in a little bit. And let's also just sort of take out the question that it couldn't happen tomorrow. It, it probably couldn't, we couldn't switch to a workless society tomorrow. Um, so if we don't have this fear of, sort of dangerous enslavement um, to having a job all the time, let's ask ourselves, why do we need to have jobs? Couldn't we arrange our culture in a way such that jobs were not necessary and work was not necessary? I think we're terrified of that question. We're terrified because it brings up other questions like, what would I do with all my boredom? What do I do with all the time I have? What do I do with all this ability to create meaning? Who am I if I am not defined by my job? There's another great essay called The Abolition of Work by Bob Black. Um, Bob Black's a real curmudgeon, just sort of motherfucker. I mean that in the nicest possible sense. And Bob Black writes, what if there was a general strike and it proved permanent because it made no demands, it was already the satisfaction of all demands? In other words, what if just the cessation of work was the whole point of the strike? Bob Black is asking us to consider what the world looks like if we reorder it without the compulsion to work. If instead of saying, let's get better working conditions, we just said, let's just not work. Because work is a compulsion. People come to me all the time and tell me about how they have a porn addiction. And they always substantiate it by saying something like, I watched porn for two hours today and, and I was late for work by 20 minutes. And I'm like, my man, 
listen, it sounds like your eight hour a day work addiction is really cutting into your ability to uh, enjoy and pleasure yourself by masturbating to porn. <laughs> So just to clarify here, by work, I don't mean just putting effort into anything. I mean the effort that you put into each day to ensure you don't starve. The effort you exert to make sure you're not killed by an indifferent state. The thing that you expend your time on to ensure you have any value whatsoever in society. These forced versions of effort, those are work. In Detroit, there's a guy named Fritjof Bergman that's working on all of this. Um, he's pushing this forward in Detroit and in Flint. Uh, he's a really amazing thinker. And Fritjof Bergman talks about how unemployment is giving us time. See, normally we don't think of unemployment as giving us time, really. Um, we might think, okay, you can take a little break, but sooner or later, your psychic time is going to be taken up because you're going to be consumed with thoughts of what to do, what kind of job you're going to get, all that. Friedrich Bergman is saying, look, so many of us are unemployed. What is it we'd like to do with our being? And he's not talking about it in some guidance counselory way. He's not talking about it in the um, Zach of all trades way. Do you remember this like PSA series? There were these cartoons in between cartoons, like during commercials when I was a kid. And it was uh, this guy, Zach, and he was super cool. He would come out of the stereo like on a wave of notes. <laughs> <laughs> and he would go, he was like, his song was like, don't pout, check it out. Zach's going to show you what work's about. And he would tell kids what they could be. You like science. You could be a weatherman. It was like that. And he also fought this being called the future blob. And the future blob was really scary because the future blob represented, was a monster that represented not knowing what you were going to do. If you couldn't figure out what your job was going to be and, and you'd just be a nobody, you'd end up being a, a blob in the future. A monster yourself, one might say. So Fritjof Bergman's not working on it in the Zach of all trades, constant infantilization. What are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to do when you grow up? What are your skills and how you take your skills and be totally submissive to the world that already exists? He's not saying that. He's saying, okay, you're unemployed. Um, let's evade all that bullshit and figure out what you want to actually be in your being, how you might contribute to the world, how you want to walk through the world. What does your day look like? Now, this goes far, far beyond the petty political schemes of stimulating the economy. It's not like, let's just get people jobs, or let's get more money flowing into malls, or whatever. Um, you, you might notice those things never get us out of economic troubles and job crises. They just sort of postpone them, and it always gets worse the next time. He's not trying to just sort of stimulate job growth. He's trying to find... Uh, a way that we can reconnect with wanting to be. Maybe those wouldn't be his terms, but I, I think that's what he's trying to do. I don't have a solution right now for how to create a workless world, obviously. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I try my best to embody it, right? I talk, I read, I fuck. Those are the things I want to do with my life, so I do it. It's not easy. I've worked for decades carving out this little space, and it's still a hustle a lot of times. Um, but the point is, I'm somewhat successful at destroying that demand to work and die in my life. I I'm trying to make my being reflect what I care about most deeply, but it's fucking hard. It shouldn't be this hard for 
me, of course, I think that first, but it shouldn't be that hard for anybody. Um, I want the kind of life where people are doing what they want, um, really being what they want and not just needing to gain to be easy, to be accessible. And the first step is imaginative, I think. Um, picturing who you could be and what the world would be. When we open up to the idea of a post-work world, we open up to a feeling of possibility, of invention, and curiosity. We open up to this idea of, what if I were something other than what I say I do? What if I am, you know, what if I want to be? What if I, uh, if the world is different than I think. In other words, if we discard the mythology of work that we're bound to, like Sisyphus, you know, just pushing that fucking rock all the time, um, and we just get rid of that rock, we've got to understand the kind of freedom we have. And if we start imaginatively, we'll continue to draw that imaginative vision into the world again and again. Instead of work or die, instead of needing to gain Let's start thinking and start talking about wanting to be. Um, let's start leaving behind this world of work. Day by day, we can do it. And we don't have to expect it to change overnight. And we don't have to have an answer to every single practical question when we begin imagining. Just start imagining. And then sooner or later, all the practical stuff will fall into place. And it will be work to get there, but it won't be work when we stay there. <laughs> That's my hope, at least. So let's start imagining it now.